Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. Well, this morning, we're going down memory lane with a good friend. He is Claude Johnson. He is founder of the Black Fives Foundation, and with all the history going on in celebration of the National Basketball Association and their 75th anniversary, they may have forgotten a certain era of basketball that led to the success of the NBA. We'll talk with Claude Johnson about that in just a few minutes. So please have a pen, pencil, piece of paper handy, or your smartphone, iPad, or whatever you use to take down some valuable information you're here this morning. And as always, we thank you for making us a part of your day, whether you're preparing for an early run or sunrise service. We'll begin this edition of New York Sports and Beyond after this timeout. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Well, Claude Johnson is author, historian, writer, and founder of the Black Fives Foundation, which is a 501c3 public charity whose mission is to research, preserve, showcase, and teach the pre-NBA history of African-American basketball while honoring its pioneers and their descendants. The Black Fives Foundation Archives contains the world's leading collection of historical artifacts from that period known as the Black Fives era. With more, let's welcome back my good friend, Claude Johnson, to New York Sports and Beyond. Claude, Happy New Year. How are you? Thank you very much. Happy New Year to you as well. I'm doing great and uh, glad to be here with you. Now, Claude, listen, I I'm going to share this with the audience because I shared it with you before we went on. I'm watching the NBA, and they are celebrating the 75th anniversary of the league, and that's all well and good, and that's great, and they should. And all the you know contributions that African Americans have made throughout the 75 years of the, of the NBA. But then I'm reminded, I need to see some Black Fives. I need to see some Black Fives, Claude. And, and since you are the founder and executive director of the Black Fives Foundation, I thought we should go back and try to you know, teach some folks who may not be familiar, even though you've done a tremendous job with the five foundation. Talk a little bit about the Black Fives and, and what that was all about. Well, I thought you were going to say that it's not the 75th anniversary, it's the 72nd anniversary, because the NBA was organized in 1949, by a merger of the National Basketball League and the Basketball Association of America. The Basketball Association of America was formed in 1946, and that's the date that the NBA uses. But actually, why? That's what we're asking, because what they're doing is they're ignoring the prior history of the National Basketball League that was formed in 1937. And in 1942, they signed 10 black players. And in 1946, they signed four more. But yet, none of those are going to be part of the 75th anniversary because they're in the NBL. And even though some of them are in the Hall of Fame, and some of those teams are now NBA teams. So we get it, and we understand the marketing and the, you know, the, 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 the momentum of it. But at some point, the NBA is going to have to correct itself if they want to hold themselves up as the league that values integrity and history and not the paving over of uh, the great contributions of prior uh, of prior uh, African-American pioneers. So, Claude, with that in mind, do you see the NBA doing what Major League Baseball has done and starting to recognize the records and the stats from the Negro Leagues? Well, you know, my whole thing is 
does the Negro Leagues recognize the stats of MLB? Because all those prior years, prior to Jackie, should have an asterisk. And okay. so, um, you know, was it really, like, who's the one who set the standard, right? So that's a debatable question. I get what you're, what you're asking, but I'm, I'm kind of trying to stir it up a little bit, too. I know. And I think that with, with, the, I think that with the NBA, I mean, there'll be a time, I believe, that we hope that we're going to be, we'd love to have a, a relationship with them that includes this history on an overall global scale with them, right? So that we don't have to go running after Adidas or Nike or whoever has the jersey license or whoever has the, you know, the other license. Um, and, you know, I think it would make sense, but we've been pitching them since uh, for, for 20 years with no, with no uh, traction whatsoever. What's been the, just as you look back over that journey, what, what's been the pitfall? Why can't uh, they understand, they being the NBA, that this is, this is a rich part of the of history of basketball and should be included into what they bring to the table? Well, you know, we've had great relationships with certain teams that, like the Hawks, uh, the Brooklyn Nets, the Oklahoma City Thunder, because they brought us in and said, hey, can you do a presentation to our staff or or, you know, some, some other way of celebrating Black History Month or, or, or some aspect of that. But it's not on a league-wide level. And so what I think happens is that when you start to talk about jerseys and merchandise, people start to say, well, who owns, you know, the intellectual property, which we own, right? So if they don't own it and you can't commercialize it, then as sad as it sounds, um, you know, leagues and organizations just won't you know, often, oftentimes celebrate that history. They just won't because they can't make money off of it, right? So, you know, we want to be in a position where, yes, it's, it would be great to do that, but also we've been very diligent and conscientious about protecting um, th that intellectual property in, a, in such a way so that the history doesn't get pimped out. Mm. And because we want to make sure that that history, because I owe it to not only the forefathers like, like, like John Isaacs, who, who was friends of ours, but also the, the Hussers and, the, and the, the Butch Purcells and, mm. and, and all the, 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 those who came before them, right? Bill Daughtry. And so, you know, we, we got to do it the right way. You can't just be like whatever. And, and, and that comes not only with the way that the, the, the jerseys are made or whatever the case, how they're represented on the court, but also how the history, because they, they go hand in hand, right? Because to us, we think that merchandise and, and, and apparel is a language in and of itself. And so our mission is to, is to teach this history, to spread the word about it, and, and it has to be done the right way. So, but we're totally open, and we always have been, to discussing any of this with, with the league. Claude Johnson is my guest. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Claude, of course, founder and executive director of the Black Fives Foundation. He's also an author. We'll talk about his books in a couple of minutes. But when New York Sports and Beyond returns, who are some of the great players that were excellent, outstanding in the Black Fives era? We'll discuss next on 98.7 
ESPN. Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's continue my conversation with Claude Johnson, author, historian, writer, and founder of the Black Fives Foundation. Claude, let's just, for uh, folks who aren't familiar, let's just talk a little bit about the Black Fives era. Right, so there were dozens of all-black basketball teams that began to emerge right around 1904, a little bit after that, um, into the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they played in different parts of the country. Um, They were sponsored by sometimes YMCAs or churches or uh, social clubs or athletic clubs, and... um, it all began in Washington, D.C., when a black gym teacher named um, Edwin Bancroft Henderson learned the game. Uh, he went to a summer school at Harvard University, and when he came back, he taught the game to his students in the then-segregated um, Washington, D.C. school district. And at first, they didn't really like it so much. It was a little bit of a, of a, of a challenge because football was the major sport, but eventually they uh, embraced it, and it Spread and other uh, locales like Brooklyn and, and, and Harlem and uh, Philly, Chicago, Pittsburgh, all started forming teams, and they started playing each other. There was never a league, Larry, but they, but they had an informal network, and they would name, uh, you know, uh, sort of like what they called a, a colored basketball world's champion mm-hmm. by consensus, kind of like the AP-UPI poll, mm-hmm. you know, today, or the you know, the, the coaches poll. And, and so that was how, how it went. And the, the, these teams, um, many of them flourished. Some tried new ways of doing business and, and, and failed. Some succeeded. So it was an experimental uh, uh, era where, you know, ultimately the, the, the best team out of that was the New York Renaissance, uh, nicknamed the New York Rens, that were, that were based right up, right up here in Harlem. And they had, uh, clearly, the Harlem Rens was a team that, what, they had the record before. People talk about the Los Angeles Lakers 33-game winning streak record, but the Rens had a record that was, Claude, substantially more than that. (laughs) Yeah, the the pro record um, at the time that they broke it was 44 straight wins by a professional team, which was the New York original Celtics. But they doubled it by winning 88 straight games in 86 days. And that was starting in uh, January of 1933. So that entire 1932-33 season, that team is enshrined as a, as a collective unit in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And so uh, you can imagine playing 88 games in 86 mm. days. It means by math that you had to play two games on some days, even three. Um, you know, if you're taking some time off, and that's what they did. You know, they they would play one game and and then and then drive 200 miles and play the second game. Um, they would have two jer- jerseys that they would take with them because one of them had to hang and dry in the bus while they were driving with the windows open, and then they had the other one that was ready. And so, you know, that's how it was back then. Now, Claude, what spurred your interest in researching? and finding out this information and bringing it to the public. Because I'm sure, you know, as with the stories that we hear from reports of the Negro Leagues and, you know, records weren't always kept 
as judiciously as one would think. So how were you able to, what, what started you with the interest and how were you able to keep it going and find out all the details? Well, you know, I was working at the NBA in 1996 when they were celebrating their 50th anniversary. I wasn't as aware as I am today of the discrepancy in the dates, but, but still that was uh, when they published this 800-page book called uh, something like the Encyclopedia, the NBA Encyclopedia of Basketball. But only three of the pages of those 800 pages were devoted to earlier African-American teams. And it was just two teams, the Harlem Globetrotters and the New York Renaissance. But I knew there were more because I had read Arthur Ashe's book, The mm -hmm. Tennis Legend, which is a hard road to glory and uh, the 400-year the uh, history of, of African-Americans in sports and in that book, there's a, there's a basketball section. And in that basketball section, they named these different teams, like the Monticello Athletic Association and the Smart Set Athletic Club. And I remember, you know, I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and I remember thinking, well, wait, this is an organization founded in 1904, the Smart Set Athletic Club. And I'm, I live in Brooklyn. I'm smart. I think I'm athletic. And why, why can't I be wearing this T-shirt walking up Flatbush Avenue one day, you know? Mm -hmm. So in my mind, that was what I was thinking all, all that time. And now all these years later, there's, a, there's an arena called Barclays Center on Flatbush. And in that arena, there are some Smartset Athletic Club uh, photos that the Nets blew up to life-size murals that we provided to them as a, as a, you know, as a compilation of, of images of African-American related basketball images from from brooklyn so what i what i tell people is you know sometimes you can start with nothing have an idea and just keep pursuing it because something is telling you that this is important and then you get reinforcement from uh people like john isaacs and others uh, to realize well wait, this it really is important this really did happen why was this squashed and you know i said you know buried in an unmarked grave right it's our responsibility to not only unbury that history, but if there is going to be, you know, a grave, let's put a, a proper marker there. Club, name some of the fabulous players of that era, like John Isaacs, like Pop Gates, like uh, Tarzan Cooper. Some some of the some of the uh, great players that you know we may not be familiar with. Yeah, I mean, you you named a couple of them. Um, you know, I mentioned that 1932-33 team that was enshrined into the Hall of Fame in 1963 as a unit and uh a few years later in 1972 the owner of the new york Rens was a gentleman named robert douglas bob douglas mm -hmm. he was enshrined um and then took another uh several years 1979 when tarzan cooper charles cooper tarzan cooper who was a, an amazing center considered one of the best centers of his time maybe the best center of his time um was enshrined and then it took another 10 years before william pop gates was enshrined he was mm -hmm. also a center and a forward and meanwhile all this time there's all these other dozens of people getting enshrined who the new york renaissance routinely defeated so you know we we started talking about it on our blog and and eventually the hall of fame reached out and said hey let, let's talk because there's got to be a way to figure this out. And, and wisely, they, um, you know, they, they created a special committee 
called the Early African American Basketball Pioneers Committee that could that could vote to enshrine uh, individual candidates directly versus going through the Veterans Committee and nobody knew who those pioneers were. So John Isaacs, to use the example that you were thinking about earlier, he's on all of our minds, right? But mm-hmm. the thing is, you know, he would go in there and he was through the Veterans Committee and he became a finalist and then he would get not enough votes. You need to become a finalist and not enough votes. So that was never going to work. And luckily, since then, um, the Hall of Fame has enshrined, uh, I think, 10 or 11 of these earlier African-American pioneers, including last year, Clarence Fats Jenkins, who was the captain of the Rens from uh, when they were their inception in 1923 all the way through 19, uh, 1939. Um, and he played basketball in four different decades. Also, Zachary Clayton, Zach Clayton, uh, who was also on those teams, um, and there there are a number of others: Char- Charlie Isles, uh, Dolly King, William mm. Dolly King. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a descendant, John King, who's running for governor uh, of Maryland, um, and has an amazing story uh, that uh, he was the secretary of education under President Obama, and so um, you know he's a very compelling candidate. Uh, and so he, he's, and, and also Dolly is a great story because he's in the Long Island University Sports Hall of Fame. Um, he was on their undefeated 1941 team uh, that went on to win the NIT, but because white leagues were not signing black players at the time, he quit an undefeated college team to tour with the New York Renaissance because he knew he could make more money. Mm-hmm. So you look at that and contrast it today. Nobody <laughs> would think about quitting an undefeated NCAA team midseason um, because that's that's just not wise anymore today. But back then, that made perfect sense. Yep, there's no question about it. Then coming up, how are today's players supporting the Black Fives era? This is New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN New York. Let's continue my discussion with Claude Johnson, author, historian, writer, and founder of the Black Fives Foundation. Claude, I was because um, my late former father-in-law, Tom Seeley, played along. Yeah. He was on the Wrens. He was on the Harlem Globetrotters, which people think started in Harlem, but really started in Chicago. And so right. through him, I was able to meet Pop Gates and John Isaacs and, and some of these players. Yeah. And, you know, Claude, the stories they had and, and what they shared with you, their abilities, uh, it just made you really shake your head at how how much they loved the game and were able to yes. persevere through all the struggles to play that game that they loved so much. It, yes. it, it, really, it, really, it really stuck with me. Yeah, and I mean, they uh, were playing against some of the best-known names that people in basketball revere, like like John Wooden, you know, and John mm-hmm. Wooden said that was the best team he had ever played against. Not necessarily the best individuals, but as a team, their passing, their movement without the ball, and their teamwork. Um, and, you know, John, John Wooden would, would know. Um, and then they had a traveling secretary. His name was Eric Illich. And uh, Eric Illich had to uh, travel, and he would always keep two things in his, in his pocket. One was a counter. So 
as he was standing there inside the arena, because, you know, they were going to a place and they would share their gate receipts, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you couldn't share the gate receipts unless you knew, okay, what's the count? So he would sit there and I was from across the way and count all the people who came in, all the people who came in, was it 200, 500, 1,000, 2,000? Because afterwards, um, they would then meet and say, okay, what's, what's the take and, and what's the split? And so the other thing that he had in his pocket was a revolver, <laughs> because just in case there's a dispute, <laughs> they, they, that's that's how they that's how they that's how they rolled. Because also they would be leaving the arena um, with lots of cash, yeah. and so you couldn't just walk around. And, and um, in an interview that he did, uh, Mr. Illich said that sometimes he had to use that revolver to protect from being mugged, or no, it wasn't really for the occasion of um the other team owner it was mostly as protection leaving um and but they but he also said hey look at the beginning when we first started touring we literally had to uh we had to knock some people out that were opponents until they finally respected us Mm. and once they realized we were we were okay we were we were were good people We we were just trying to play we're, 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 you know, we're talented. Um, then they left us alone, and so um, that I, I write about some of that in my book because I think that's the other side of 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 the story. You know, how did an all black team go into an all white town in an all white state like Wisconsin during the middle of the Great Depression, during the middle of Jim Crow, and win? and leave safely and get invited back repeatedly. That had to have involved collaboration, organization, negotiation, communication, um, and, and ultimately respect and, and, and consideration, right? And so that, that's all the, these early pioneers and this history, you know, is trying to, is trying to get acknowledgement for. You know what, Claude, when we step back and we look at every part of, uh, Every part of a movement, be it civil rights movement, be it the movement we've had recently uh, with the Black Lives Matter, it has always been when people from other uh, races joined in to say, this is wrong how we're being treated. This is the best way to do it. I'll stand up. I'll represent. I'll do. And this is how it has always been. And Claude, that's the only way it's going to change. It can't change with just one race saying, hey, look what you're doing to us. It is, hey, look what you're doing to us. And other people saying, hey, look what you're doing to them. That's not right. Here's what we should do to change it. Right. And it's not just look what you're doing to them. It's we're all in this together. So if you're mistreating or, or, or oppressing one part of us, we're, you know, you're, you're really oppressing all of us. And I have a new book coming out. I'm not sure if you were aware of that. In May 2022, Mm-hmm. Um, it's a 425-page book. It's it's a full narrative nonfiction on the history of the Black Fives era, and it's it's the epic story of the of this history um, through the eyes of certain pioneers, and it really gets into who were they, what were they thinking, why did they mm. make these decisions, what were they feeling when they did this, and it's all based on the history and the research and and the, uh, the, the snippets of information that, that we still have available. So it brings it, I believe, I hope that it brings it to life 
Um, there's also going to be uh, multiple glossy photos in there. Nice. And, um, you know, it'll be a, a good dramatic uh, read. And I won't give away, you know, I won't give away the ending. Um, but, you know, sometimes history is, is stranger than fiction. Right? You couldn't make it up. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree with you that, you know, there, there had to be uh, some collaboration. And, and today, too, you know, there, there are very many. And I used to work at the league, right? So I have friends there. But mm-hmm. then there's the business side of it, and they, yeah. they can't yet seem to wrap their head around it. But I know that eventually they'll figure it out. And, um, you know, we, we now, and, and we've always had a great relationship with the Players Union. Um, Players Union Foundation gave us our very first grant as a nonprofit. So they recognize and understand what we're doing. And we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that grant. Um, mm. That, you know, sometimes people don't realize, like, it's modest, but to us it was a fortune, and it's like, wow, you know, I mean, we literally couldn't have made it to the next step, and we sometimes look like we're this giant organization, corporation, or whatever, but it's very humble, and very humble footprint, so any, anyone who gives us a contribution, a donation, you know, it really matters, and, and, and so you know, now we're in a position, we have a partnership with Puma, it's a long-term partnership. We're working on some other uh, partnerships and, and, and collaborations that are in the slow cooker that are, you know, like this um, uh, project with uh, Russell Westbrook, uh, which I know you're going to ask about, and uh, propagate content that will really help ideally elevate this, this history. You, you know what, Claude? Obviously, you had some broadcasting. Uh, training because that's the perfect transition. I was just about to ask you about that that collaboration <laughs> with you and Russell Westbrook. So because it jumped out at me, I saw it a couple of weeks ago. So let's talk about it. What and and along with that, how have today's players who really seem to embrace the history, uh, Claude, and understand politically where we are? Uh, how how have they enamored themselves to what you're doing with the Black Five Foundation? Well, the, those who know really embrace it and love it. And I, I mentioned um, the other day, uh, well, not the other day, a, a couple of moments ago, where the, the uh, Players Union gave us our first grant, and they also invited us to put goodie bags of some products into an executive meeting, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the goodie bags of all the players who are participating in this executive meeting. And years later, when we run into some of the guys, even like Steph and Curry, he's like, oh, yeah, I got that Black Five cap. Mm. And so um, that combined with Puma now, who has, you know, great ambassadors like Marcus Smart and others who are, you know, boogie cousins who are wearing the Black Fives merchandise that's Puma, but also it's, it's you know, they're, they have their own contract with Puma. Um, and now with, uh, with, with uh, Russell Westbrook and his organization, which is Russell Westbrook Enterprises, but within that they have uh, Zero World Media, and Zero World Media and Russell Westbrook Enterprises, they just they just came off of a very successful Tulsa burning uh, film that um, aired on History Channel, and so they they approached us um, with uh, this company called Propagate Content is a production company based in L.A. that's run by two gentlemen, Ben Silverman, 
who was the producer behind The Office, mm. uh, that, that amazingly successful show, and um, Howard Owens, who used to be the president of National Geographic Channel. And so they've created this amazing production company that produces great content, great storytelling, um, unusual uh, stories that, that are maybe undertold, um, that should be told, and they also do the they also do the distribution and the creation and all the above. And so um, we're super excited to be you know in that in that team. Uh, really honored and humbled to be in that team. But what's what's great about it is that it's Russell Westbrook, right? So mm-hmm. he's an integral part of the NBA family, um, and so we couldn't be more delighted. And uh, you know we're definitely um, excited to. To, to be to be with them it's we just got started so people are already asking when's it going to air but it's not you know, we just started the, the project um but it's but it that shows you that you know when you were talking about different races earlier i mean we're getting we're getting people in minsk belarus or in south africa or in taiwan posting about the black fives right mm-hmm. um in italy in germany in the uk um in Australia, in, in Korea, and, and Japan. And so what's great about that is it shows that there's a yearning for writing this wrong of finding out the, the true history of basketball. Because it used to be, well, this is just this ancient black history in America. Ah, maybe it doesn't really matter. Nobody really cares about it. But we do, now we know that people really do care because it's, it's global. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's a movement, and you know the, the the amount of interest that's out there. It's not just in the apparel. It's people saying, "Hey, check out this apparel, but look at this story. Look at this cause. Look at what what's behind it." And uh, that yearning, I think, is is worldwide because we've reached this point in time where all of this has come to a, a critical mass, and and it's it's bigger than just basketball, right? And so, that, to your point about NBA players today using the NBA as a as a stage as a platform to to elevate their voices and to talk about causes and things that matter um, not just to them but to the greater community uh, that we're that we're all in we're all in it together <laughs> so mm-hmm. right. we might as well you know so I, I appreciate you asking about that and, sh- and sharing that with your listeners. Oh no, no problem, Claude. That's what we want them to know, and uh, that knowledge is power. And it's good to see because sometimes we get a little disillusioned with this generation, right? They don't know. We make general broad statements, but they're doing their own thing in their own way. And for Russell Westbrook yeah. to reach out to to uh, and the company that he's with and 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 the relationships, as you know, the one hand washes the other, and both hands wash the face. So these relationships that bring things to fruition, and and it's good because now more and more people will find out about this rich history of the Black Five era and the Black Five Foundation. Talking to Claude Johnson, founder and executive director of the Black Five Foundation on New York Sports and Beyond here on ninety eight seven ESPN, which takes me into your website which has at blackfives.org, which has the online museum. It has a way for you to to find out all the information about them. And as you mentioned, Claude, the apparel, which is simply outstanding. I love the apparel. I love what you guys have done there. Oh, thank you. We've we got to get you hooked up, bro. 
I'd be glad to. All right. So offline, you got to give give me your shoe size, t-shirt, and same with Ray. And and I mean, no, we'd be we'd be delighted to do it. Uh, we're working with Puma. We just did a photo shoot for the next uh, for the next launch or the next drop, um, actually at Gaucho's gym mm. uh, up in the Bronx. And so yes. yeah, so we're really you know, and what we did here is we said okay, we we used um, African American models that weren't necessarily from an agency. They were people that for some of them this is the chance of a lifetime um, to be involved in an in an international uh, campaign. Um, so, you know, when we first did this, one of the, one of the shots, um, was, was carried in Vogue Italia because mm. they just thought it was such a cool concept. And then, then that same hoodie, uh, Jay-Z wore it to an event and Selena Gomez wore it to an event. So some of, some of these items, when they come out, they sell out. Um, we just had, uh, this cardigan sweater. That is, um, it looks like, well, it is, it's a cardigan, a cable knit cardigan, but the sleeves are like hoodie sleeves. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it's got a shawl collar. And uh, just yesterday or the day before, um, Pastor Jamal Bryant in Atlanta from mm-hmm. New Birth uh, was wearing that same sweater on his, uh, you know, during Revival Week. And then he showed up in a photo with, <laughs> with President Biden and Vice President Harris wearing that same sweater. Nice. And, you know, then you know, Jalen Rose was wearing it courtside at a Pistons game, uh, standing next to Big Sean, right, who's from Detroit. So, you know, we, we just love it because who would have ever thought, you know, it's just this one person struggling to try to make people aware of this. But sometimes you, you can have the right thing and it's the right, uh, you're in the right place, um, and you're the right person, but it's the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Or you could be the, you know, it's the right time, the right place, the right, per- the right thing, but you're the wrong person. <laughs> you know, That's so right. Yeah. All of the above. And when it all comes together, um, you just you you you, you pray and, and and be grateful and and be humble and um, just be open to the the whatever the divine guidance is that that helps you move forward with that. The greatest high is good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Claude, before we uh, wrap up and I'll share this with the audience, I told Claude that I had a, a surprise question for him that I was going to ask. Uh, and so, Claude, I want you to tell me I'm hearing about this football player out of the <laughs> University of San Diego. Uh, I think he's a cornerback that you might be familiar with. Uh, uh, Cassius Johnson. You, you familiar with anybody of that name? Yeah, that's uh, my oldest son, Cassius Johnson, Greenwich, Connecticut, and um, he's a pro prospect. He he's won four uh, four conference championship rings while there, um, and uh, he's um, he's got the perfect size for a corner. He runs a four three forty. He's got a thirty nine inch vertical. He can bench two twenty five eight times. Um, you know, he's got a three point nine five shuttle speed. Uh, he can do that L drill in 6.52 seconds. So if scouts or anybody's listening, you know, and we've had conversations with uh, people in the NFL and other other places. And so because he's Division One Double A, they don't always get as much exposure as mm-hmm. the D1A uh, FBS. Mm-hmm. But um, each year that he's been there, um, the uh, University of San Diego has sent players to the NFL. 
And so, um, you know, we know there's going to be a protein pro uh, pro day. So you want to, the, the idea is to get into as many pro days as possible. That's what scouts watch you. Um, we know that he's already on the radar, but we also have to just, you know, do our best to stay, you know, stay trained, stay, stay healthy, um, and just be, be ready and, and then see what happens and just keep trying to get better. Claude, listen, both New York football teams need him. I mean, we, they may have to fight over him here because I'm <laughs> after a couple of four and four, a four, four and thirteen seasons. No, they 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 need all the help they can get, Claude. So I'm sure that the Giants and Jets will be among those who are who are, invite him to a pro day or will go to where his pro day is. <laughs> Let's go, man! From from your lips to God's ears, you know. How did he escape to football, Claude? <laughs> With all that basketball around there, how did he escape? <laughs> Well, I, so him and his younger brother um, are, are both football players because his younger brother is a junior at University of Michigan. He's a mm-hmm. wide receiver. He was the leading receiver on the team uh, this year, and they went to the, uh, you know, to the to the semifinal of the uh, FBS championship. Mm-hmm. They lost to Georgia. Yeah. Um, so so he's so both of them just gravitated toward football. I think it was because of their speed and just athleticism. Um, but you know, for whatever reason, and my youngest also really, the people who know about him as a football player, he's the best of, he's the best athlete in the family of all three. And he was tremendous at football. Um, but he just chose basketball. Uh, Uh he won a pop Warner national championship one year. He had, uh, he had, uh, 21 touchdowns, um, that year playing, playing for, uh, New Rochelle. Um, new row in the house, uh, so you know that those are fun times, and um, you know we we all root for each other. We go to each other's games, and it's exciting and fun, and it's a blessing. No question about it. Best of luck uh, to all your kids and 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 your family, and Claude, be in good health. Uh, once again, Thank all you. the information you want about the Black Fives Foundation, blackfives.org. That tells you everything. It's a one-stop shopping place. You got history. You can go to the online museum. You can you can order. You can do everything you need to know there. Uh, and Claude, when the book comes out, make sure you come back and talk to us about it. And also, as we get a date for the uh, project that you're working with, Russell Westbrook and and the folks there, let's let's inform the audience about that too, because it's all about support. We're family, and it's all about support and getting the, getting the word out there. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, listen, thanks so much. It's it's just a blessing to, to be on your show. Claude, always a pleasure, my friend. We will talk soon. Okay, thank you. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. We thank you for listening. We'll join you this evening during the week on ESPN New York Tonight with Gordon Damer and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my all-world producer, the legendary Ray Primetime Santiago and the coach, Anthony Pusick, I'm Larry Hardesty. The conversation continues right now on 98.7 ESPN, New York.